0: Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. Well, there's a phrase that you may or may not have heard of, but it kind of goes like this. Well, the handwriting is on the wall. You ever heard that? Oh, yeah. well, Lucy, I'm sorry. It seems to be very familiar to you. <laughs> if you don't know what that phrase means, let me kind of give it to you in some modern vernacular. It's another way of saying hey, you know what? The gig is up, <laughs> the relationship is over. The season has ended. And beloved, I'm here today to stand before you today to tell you that there comes a time when God says the handwriting's on the wall. There comes a time in the life of God's people and other people where God simply says enough is enough. God says the handwriting's on the wall, but for many, we don't know how to read it. Or sometimes we don't even know it's there. But yet God has said it. It's kind of like a lady who had been on the Titanic before that unsinkable ship sank. She said that, reading in her memoir, she said that people were on the deck getting pieces of ice from the iceberg throwing them around at each other and even putting them in their drinks to make them colder as the ship went down without them even knowing it. People can be so close to judgment. People can be so close to disaster and yet not know that the handwriting is on the wall. Think of it maybe this way. Let's just pretend, and I know none of you in the room do this, but let's just pretend that you're speeding down Highway 71. And to make it where I know none of you do it, let's just pretend that you're going 20 miles an hour over the speed limit. Well, the Fayette County Sheriff's Office is out there, and they see you, and they flip on their lights, and they pull you over. The officer gets out of his car and he, without even really telling you a whole lot what's going on other than what you've done, he begins writing you a ticket and all of a sudden you, you cry out and you say, officer, officer, wait a minute. I mean, I need you to know that this morning I mowed my neighbor's lawn. As a matter of fact, I was at ATB and there's this little old lady having trouble getting her groceries to her car. I helped her and I even returned the cart. And to your surprise, the officer says, well, I didn't know that. Why didn't you tell me about that? I mean, that's two good deeds. Surely it outweighs this one bad deed. You're free to go. Is that how that works? No, because you see, the officer isn't concerned with what you did right. He's going to be there to enforce what law you broke. And I'm here today to tell you that God will enforce the laws that we break. No matter if we're thinking that we've done a lot of good, there still has to be judgment on the sin in our life. The handwriting is on the wall. Sometimes we think that the Lord somehow in His grace is going to just look over or bypass judgment on our sin because we have so many good things that we do. Our text this morning, if you've been following with us, we're in Daniel chapter 5. So you can go ahead and turn there if you desire, because we're going to be reading from there in just a moment. But our text this morning is somewhat serious. It seems like the last king didn't learn to the very end what another king is going to learn very quickly. And We're going to be talking about, over the next couple of weeks, God's judgment on sin. Not because I'm thinking that that's popular, (laughs) simply because that's what the text is covering. And I don't preach it with anger in my heart. I don't preach it like, man, you guys ought to get it right. I preach it saying, God, search me and know my sin. And let's walk in mutual brokenness over our sin together. So we're going to look at one truth this morning that God says about judgment on sin. And then hopefully the next Sunday we'll deal with the other three. Chances are we might not get to all those. We might have to break that up into another message itself. I don't know. Let's talk about the judgment on sin. Everybody in the room has already checked out. I get it. You're like, man, I don't want to hear this. Maybe we need to hear it. Because God is holy. Amen. So I wonder, and this might take us a few moments to get through, but I wonder, because I want to tell you the whole story. Because I'm just taking part of the story to cover this morning. But I want you to hear the whole story about how we come to the conclusion that we've arrived at this morning. So I wonder if you just rise your feet, and I'm going to read in its entirety, Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 31. Now, if you're here and you ask this question, man, why are we spending so much time reading 31 verses of Scripture? Well, because another passage of Scripture tells us, it tells those like Pastor Justin and myself, it says, give yourself over to the public reading of God's Word. That's why we do what we do. Not because it's just religion. Not because this is what we're supposed to do. Because God says this is what we're supposed to do. The public reading of his word. And I believe this book is so alive and so powerful, just the reading of it changes lives. How about you? I mean, really, this is more important than what I've got to say. And everybody ought to say amen right there. and <laughs> like, Pastor, you don't have to convince us. But let's let's listen or follow along and, and ask The Lord really, Holy Spirit, would you please show me where I'm at in this text? Belshazzar, now that's interesting. I thought we were dealing with Nebuchadnezzar. Pay attention. Nebuchadnezzar is in heaven at this point. Because remember, he received the Messiah last week. Belshazzar, the king held a great feast for how many? For a thousand of his nobles. That's a party. And he was drinking what? Uh, Bad choice. He was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. Why does it tell us that? It's interesting. When Belshazzar had tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. But Then suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. The king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. And the king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple, have a necklace of gold around his neck, and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they couldn't read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his face grew even paler and his nobles were perplexed. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and the nobles and the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Don't let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale because there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanations of enigma, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. So let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Well, then Daniel was brought in before the king and the king spoke and said to Daniel, are you the Daniel who is the one of the exiles, one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father, the king brought from Judah? Now I've heard about you that there is a spirit of God inside of you that illumination, insight and extraordinary wisdom has been found in you. Just now the wise men and conjurers were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make this interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you were able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered, and he said before the king, he said, Keep your gifts. Keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O King, the Most High God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar your father. And because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations of every man, language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared alive, and whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly and he was disposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of beasts. His dwelling place was like the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the most high God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets it over whom he wishes. Yet, Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your nobles and your wives and concubines have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron and wooden stone, which you do not see, hear, understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and all your ways you've not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription is written out. Now, this is the inscription that was written out. This is the interpretation of the message. God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. You have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Paris, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple, put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he had now had the authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. But that same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now let me give you some context and some setting that will help you understand what's happened from the end of chapter 4 because we enter into chapter 5 and it's almost like what has happened. What happened in Nebuchadnezzar? What, what is, what, what's going on here? So you may have noticed, and I pointed out, that there's a different king. Nebuchadnezzar has went home to glory to be with the Messiah since we talked about that last week. But 23 years, approximately 23 years, have passed since the end of verse 37 in chapter 4 and the beginning of verse 1 in chapter 5. Daniel, at this time, is in his 80s. The throne of Babylon became a precarious seat after the death of Nebuchadnezzar in 562 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar had a son, Evil Merodach, who was murdered by his brother-in-law Nereglasser in 560. The young son of Nereglasser, Labashi Marduk, was put on the throne, where he only lasted for two months before being murdered by some conspirators. One of them being Nabonidus who was a son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law, Nabonidus, married into the family, and most likely because of political reasons designed to help him get the throne, which he took in 556. Because Nabonidus had married into the family, He had a son named Belshazzar. That's why the text says that it's his father, Nebuchadnezzar, meaning an ancient Semitic way of saying one of your relatives or somebody of old, like we would say Father Abraham today. Well, Abraham's not our father, but it's a way of referring. So this Belshazzar is not necessarily, when you think about Nebuchadnezzar is not his father, it's just a Semitic way of talking about an ancient way of relating to people. But nevertheless, in 553 BC, Nabunidus the king went off to Tema. So he's the new king. Nabunidus is the new king. He's, he's got a son, Belshazzar. But in 553, he's ruling the kingdom of Babylon, and he goes off to this place called Tema in Arabia to build this commercial empire. He left his son, his son, Nabunidus' son, he left Belshazzar in charge of Babylon as his vice regent. Nabunidus... The, the, the king there wasn't really wanting to rule. He really wasn't interested in government. He wasn't really good at it either. And he'd really gotten in trouble with the people there in Babylon because the priests of Marduk hated him because he focused in on worshiping the, the moon god affectionately called sin. <laughs> now, what you need to know is that by the time we get here to chapter 1, the Medes and the Persians have surrounded Babylon. <laughs> But the real king is out doing some stuff. He's upset all the people. His son, Belshazzar, is in the well-protected kingdom of Babylon. But, but here it goes. Nabonidus then hears of stuff. And so he goes throughout the communities and he takes all their gods away from them, trying to protect Babylon from what's going on. And so he makes all those people angry. And then in October the 10th of 539 B.C., A place where he was at, it falls to the enemy and Nebuchadnezzar flees. Well, two days later is where we find ourselves in chapter one. And the Medes and the Persians are an hour away of taking over Babylon. An hour away. Here's the thing that I want you to know about God's judgment on sin. Now let's turn to the text at hand. Now that you know what we're dealing with when we talk about Belshazzar, why he's there, not his father, the real king, and why they're vice regents, and why he offers somebody to be third in power of the kingdom. Because it's got his father and then him, so that's why somebody would be third in power. You just, just understand the context. Well, The Lord sees and contemplates our sin. You see, for many people, they think that, or maybe they forget, or it could be that you simply don't know that the Lord really does see everything. And God not only sees our sin and and contemplates it, but God even knows the intentions of our heart. He even sees the motives that we sin by. Let's break this down and see how the text does in verses one through four. What is it? What does it mean that the Lord sees and contemplates our sin? Well, first of all, he sees the sins of indulgence. He sees the sins of indulgence. Look in verse 1, if you would. Belshazzar had a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. So Belshazzar throws a massive feast... A wild party, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Now, now think about that. Think about just the logistics of throwing that kind of a party for over a 1,000 people. I don't think that's going to fit in our cafe. We've done some research, and, and man, scholars that I, I looked into study this, and it's historically accurate, is that this this dining room that he has in the kingdom there inside the walls is reportedly 1,650 feet wide by a mile long. He's got the space. There's 4,500 pillars in the shape of giant elephants that are 20 feet tall that are lined in stone around the place. But it's interesting because verses 2 through 4 tell us some interesting information. He's tasted the wine. He tells them to bring the gold and silver, which is Relative Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which is in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they bring the gold vessels taken out of the temple. The house of God was in Jerusalem, and the king and the nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. And then they drank the wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, and wooden and stones. So here's a couple of things you need to understand the word drink, drink, or taste is mentioned five times. The things coming out of the temple of Jerusalem and this God is mentioned and a whole bunch of women and concubines are mentioned. That's not there just for filler. It's there to tell us something. See, there's perfume and there's loud music as the musicians and the magicians, the con- they're all there. But don't forget that there's concubines there. Now, I'm just going to Try to be discreet because of our audience, but I need you to understand those women were there for one purpose and one purpose alone. I'm going to leave it at that. This, according to most of the scholars looking at the Hebrew language, would tell us, and I'm going to be discreet here, this was a flesh feast with many partners. Another word starts with an O an and ends in a Y I could describe that very easily. Belshazzar was drunk, and he set the example for drunkenness, sensualness, and revelry, and he was indulging to his flesh at the very core of who he was. Notice I told you the word drink, taste, or drink is mentioned five times. This is a tremendous problem now as it was then. Too many are not only indulging in the the sensual side of the flesh, but in the sin of drunkenness with alcohol. It is a great sin against holy God. And see, what you need to understand and what I need to tell you is that that sin is never static. Your sin never just stays with you. It always follows the law of diminishing returns. You're never going to get something better when you invest in sin. It'll always be something worse. And it leads to other sins. So... If I'm going to indulge in alcohol and get drunk, you can just bet you're going to fall into other sins. So when we indulge in one sin, we always need something else to satisfy us because the last drink couldn't do it, so we need another one, and then that doesn't satisfy, so we got to turn to women, and that doesn't satisfy, so we got to turn to something else. This is the nature of sin, and it's when we indulge ourselves in it, but... Because there's such an emphasis here on his drunkenness, let me tell you what the scripture says. I am not talking about if you have a drink at dinner. I'm talking about the sin of drunkenness. So please don't misunderstand me. But let me tell you what the Bible says about alcohol in this way. Because too many people are indulging too heavily in this in our country. And I just need you to know. Proverbs 23: 29 through35 says, "Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without call? Who has red eyes? Well, I'll tell you who, the Bible says. Those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red. When it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly, because in the end it bites like a snake and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your mind will say perverse things. And I'm telling you, when people get drunk, they say things. You can always tell when somebody's inebriated. And you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or the one who lies down on top of a mass saying, they struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me and I didn't know it. When I wake... I will seek another drink. Isn't that the truth, folks? You see, God has laid out for those in leadership. Listen to me carefully. Those of us who are in leadership, when it comes to alcohol, and I'm going to tell you, if you are a father in the room, you are a leader of your family, so this applies to you as well. Proverbs 31 says it this way. It is not for kings, Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or the rulers to desire even intoxicating drink. Otherwise, they would drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the needy. We would do well to heed the scripture's advice on this. We would do well to heed what Isaiah 5, verses 23 through 24 says. Woe, that's strong language biblically. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing intoxicating drink who declare the wicked innocent for a bribe and take the rights of the ones who are right. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses in the flame, so their root will become like rot and their blossom blow away like dust for they have rejected the law of the Lord of armies and discarded the word of the Holy One of Israel. God says, you want to you ignore what I have to say about alcohol and drunkenness in my word? You have discarded me, and I would judge that sin. That's what God is saying. Belshazzar, it's not for kings to drink. But you've indulged yourself that led you into a, a, a promiscuous party. And that leads to the second thing, the sins of indifference. Because see, when you begin to indulge, you lose all ability to rationally think. You're just interested in protecting you and your sin. So then you become indifferent. Verse 1, he throws a party. Think about that. Contextually, you need to understand, he's throwing a massive party. Why, why, this doesn't make any sense, Belshazzar. Why are you throwing a party? Because less than 50 miles away, it has been reported throughout the kingdom... That the Medes and the Persians are preparing to assault Babylon like it is coming any moment now. Why are you throwing a party? Maybe he's trying to be brave. Maybe he's trying to inspire by his courage. Maybe he's trying to drown his own fears with alcohol and amusement or physical pleasure. Maybe he's just simply arrogant that Babylon won't fall. I mean, here they are. They're relaxing and they're feasting while they're being surrounded. Maybe it's because he's just so prideful, as we've talked about before, that the walls of Babylon are 350 feet high by 87 feet wide. There's hundreds of towers that go even up above that, hundreds of meters so they can see for miles around. I mean, it's, it's surrounded by a river. You just can't get in. You can't really get out. I mean, this thing is impenetrable. Maybe he's just saying there's no way the Medes and Persians will ever get in. Studies tell us that there's an abundance of food. They had 20 years worth of food within the walls. There wasn't a need for water because they had a river that flowed right through the city. (laughs) But Belshazzar maybe was living in the false sense of security of pride. Maybe he was indulging in his flesh and that led to the sin of indifference because I've seen it happen in my life. Basically, I'm just telling you, he doesn't care. You just don't care what people have to say about your sin, and you definitely don't care what God has to say. Because when you're indulging in it, it feels good, and it meets some needs, and the last thing you want to do is give it up, so you just become indifferent. And see, what happens as God says, there's handwriting on the wall. Because your sins of indulgence and my sins of indulgence lead us to this sin of indifference where we just don't give a rip until finally it leads us to this third thing that we see in the text, and that is the sin of irreverence. The sins of irreverence. Beshazzar took the holy vessels of God took them out where well, they had been removed from the temple of God. He, his, his, his relative had taken them out of the temple of God, but he had enough sense to know that they were special, put them in a secret, special place. And this man goes and grabs these holy and consecrated vessels. Now think about that word, holy. Holy means to set apart for special purposes. So these holy vessels that had been set apart specifically for worshiping the God of Israel were now being used to worship the God somewhere else amidst this this fleshly, sensual, just wild, massive thing. Trying to be discreet. You see, Belshazzar has not only indulged in sexual sin or just the sins of alcohol and drunkenness and indifference to what God has said about it. Now he adds to it the sins of blasphemy, mockery, and idolatry. For 70 years, these vessels have been in Babylon, and nobody dared do this. Yet he decides to take them and use them for his, his party. He, he, he drinks the wine out of them. And the reason it keeps being repeated over and over through this text is because when Belshazzar was drinking the wine out of these cups, he was mocking the fact that they had defeated the God of Israel and he was going to drink a toast to their victory. This God is dead. This God has been defeated. Our God rule, it was an, uh, just a very intentional attempt to mock the God of Israel. Then he goes on to use those holy vessels to worship his God. That is utter blasphemy. This is utter contempt. It's a sin of irreverence to the utmost. And then he goes on to ask everybody else to join him. But did you notice verse 4? They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now it moves to idolatry. There are gods that are not the real God. These are handmade, fake. They have no real existence. Think about it. Babylon was the ancient birthplace of idolatry. And, and we can trace this. And just pay attention to me for a moment. It spread from Babylon and it went into the world. And we know that Babylon is the reason that we have Buddhism and Hinduism in the world. Still worshiping these gods. Still making idols, still making statues, still making little Buddhas in this shape and and little things of that shape and this and that. Because these idols are made of molten metal, gold, brass, iron, huge stone. They're deaf. They're dumb. They don't have sight. They don't have hearing. They're without feeling. They're useless. They're hopeless. And all they do is make a fool of those who worship them. And God sees this sin of irreverence and he's telling us today that his judgment will come upon our indulgence, our indifference, and our irreverence because the handwriting is on the wall. Listen, a hundred years before we get here, Isaiah the prophet and Isaiah 47 verses 10 and 11 said this, he said, you felt secure in your wickedness and you said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, they have led you astray for you said in your heart, I am and there's none besides me, but evil will come upon you, which you do not know how to charm away and disaster will fall upon you for which you cannot atone and destruction about which you do not know will come on you suddenly. The handwriting is on the wall. And the Lord will enact his judgment on sin. And there's nothing secure enough to keep anyone from God's judgment. So I was thinking about this and I began to think through what may be going through your mind when you would hear this. And so I thought, well, you might say, well, this really doesn't apply to me. So let me just speak to that for a moment and bring you to a couple of things of application and then close us. Maybe you haven't sinned with the sin of drunkenness and maybe you don't have a physical statue of an idol in your house or in your car. So let me explain to you what this really is in other words. And I borrow from Pastor J.D. Greer. I borrow these thoughts from him. Basically, sin happens when we don't worship God as God. When we, when we live our lives and don't bring God glory in everything we think, say, or do, that is sin. Sin happens any moment in our lives when God isn't first place. But secondly, sin happens when we take the things meant for worshiping God and use them for our purposes. Sin happens when we take the things that were meant for worshiping God and we use them for our purposes. I mean, these cups, these vessels and stuff were meant for worship, but then he used them for his own sinful pleasures and his own desires. So again, Dr. Brown, how does this apply to me Maybe the question that you're asking. And so I'm not trying to cause trouble. I'm just trying to make application. So I think that the Bible gives at least three areas, and we could mention a whole lot more. But just for application purposes, here are three areas that I think that we take the things that that are meant to worship God and we use them for our own purposes. First of all, it's the area of our talents. You see, your gifts and talents were given to you to glorify God and to serve Him. That's their purpose. And so not to use them for those purposes is like stealing the consecrated things that God has given you for his worship, but you using them for yourself. And this is all the meanwhile while you're coming to church and keeping every other commandment that God has given. Jesus, I don't have the time to, to tell you the whole story, but Jesus tells a story about three, three servants in this parable of some talents, and one's given five, one's given three, and one's given one. What strikes me in that story, if you're familiar with it, is how Jesus Jesus speaks to the servant who buried the talent and didn't use it. He calls him a wicked servant. Well, I need to know what wickedness had he done. I mean, he just buried the talent. Evidently, there's more than one way to be wicked. You can be wicked by breaking the Ten Commandments. It's like committing adultery, stealing, or murdering. But the Bible also says that you can be wicked by failing to leverage your talents for God's purposes. One is a sin of commission. God said that I shouldn't do it, and I do it. That's a sin of commission. The other is a sin of omission. God said I'm supposed to use my talent for this, but I don't. So let that think in. Let that just sink in for a moment. You could keep all the commandments of God and still be considered wicked because you commandeered the talents God gave you for His purposes and you're using them for your own. I mean, you're a model church member. You never break any of the laws of God, the laws of the land, but God still sees you as wicked simply because you don't take your talents and use them for God and just offer to God your talents and your gifts and say, God, what do you want me to do with these? You see, along with that, there's also this big myth that surrounds church culture that says people like Justin, Pastor Justin, and myself are the only ones called to ministry. And I just need you to know that God has called every single person that knows him to use their gifts for ministry. So the question is not if I'm called. The question is where and how you're called. And that being said, I want to encourage every single one of our college students and the parents of those college students to think about this. Put the mission of God first where you choose to pursue your education and you choose to pursue your career. Lots of factors go into what you pursue as a career and why you would do that and where you would do that. But put the kingdom of God first in that decision. I'm going to want to tell you, do what you do and what you plan to do all for the glory of God, but see how it fits in the kingdom of God and his purposes. I wonder, could I challenge everybody in this room that's thinking about going to college? Can I ask you, just consider the first two years after you graduate, going to live somewhere and helping a church plant through the North American Mission Board. Why wouldn't you want to do that? You've got to work a job, get the job, get the degree, get the education, then strategically place yourself to use that and to use that income and to use your gifts and talents to help a church plan reach people in the kingdom of darkness. Why won't we do that? Because we simply want to take what we want to do and use it for our own purposes, not God's. Just trying to get you to challenge your thinking. A second area that scripture says, and beloved, I'm going to, this is going to get messy for a second. This is the area of our resources. I've debated, I even talked with Pastor Justin about this. I've debated whether I should share this and I just can't not, I have to be faithful. The Bible says in Malachi, it says, will a man rob God? And God said in the book of Malachi, then ask, how have we robbed you, God? And God says, by not giving a tithe to me. You see, of all that God gave you, you have been commanded in the scripture to give back at least the first 10% of all that you make back to God. And to not do that, God considers stealing just like he did with what Belshazzar did with those holy vessels. You and I then are misusing a very consecrated thing, which be the resources that God has given you to spend on your own purposes and not for his. And let me just tell you today that after church today, we're going to take a vote on our church budget. And I need you to know this church budget took a severe cut. There are ministries that we will no longer do in 2024. As a matter of fact, our outreach budget almost got cut by $9,000. There are things that we won't be able to do. There are things and people that we won't be able to reach because we had to cut the budget. Why? Can I just be real? Can I just speak honestly with you? It's because only about 8% of this church tithes. So you're telling me that we can't reach the Grange because 90-some percent of our people just will not do what God's asked them to do? See, we can stand up here this afternoon and we can vote to approve a budget. And my staff and our finance team have done a tremendous job to present us a budget. But if we go out of here leaving saying, man, so glad we got us a budget and we're excited about that without that breaking our hearts that we can no longer reach people the way we did, I think we've got a major problem as a church. This budget shouldn't be an amen. This budget should be an oh me. This budget should absolutely break our hearts. Because the problem is not that we don't have the money. The problem is that too many of us are just keeping it in our own pockets. Now let me go to meddling even more. This last one is, let me give you one more way. We take the things of God and we use them for our own purposes. And that's with our sexual sin. To use someone else for your own gratification outside of the ways God has prescribed, God considers stealing. God considers you misusing a very consecrated thing. In the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 6, God describes sexual sin with a banking word of defrauding. God says, don't defraud one another sexually. You see, the body is a sacred thing. It's made in the image of God. And for a believer, when you use someone else for your sexual pleasure, you're taking a very precious thing and you're defrauding them and using it for your own gratification. And God considers that just as severe to judge as he does what Belshazzar is doing. Because the writer of Hebrews says that the marriage bed should be honored above all and kept undefiled, but those who engage in sexual immorality, God will judge. You see, when you and I look at pornography, you're defrauding that person of their dignity. You're using what God intended to be holy and sacred as an object of your own personal pleasure. And listen, if you are married and looking at pornography, you are committing adultery. This isn't just something we can just brash over. Belshazzar, of course, had taken this sin even to a greater degree because concubines were his intercourse slaves. So now he's taking this precious holy thing, these precious women, and he's taking it from them by force without even the consent of the person he's having this intercourse with. And I'm here today to tell you that sexual abuse is one of the most damaging things we can do to anybody or that anybody can experience. You're taking something that God considers holy by force and using it for your own pleasure. And God says for that, the handwriting is on the wall. It's just a matter of time before he executes his judgment because there will come a time and there will come a point when God says enough's enough. So there's three, and I'm glad I could bless you today. You think I'm not looking at my own heart over this stuff? And I am. I'm not preaching at you. I'm trying to preach with you. Paul says, whatever we do, we should do it all to the glory of God. And anything, anything that is not first and foremost done as an act of worship to him is stealing. We should do everything we do for his glory. To not use every part of our body for God's purpose and his glory is to steal consecrated things and misuse them for our pleasure. Just like Belshazzar did. So then what do we do? Well, that's where I want to give you these words. Mark chapter 1 verse 15 if you are not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to hear this. Mark 1 15 says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. The Bible just simply tells you this morning, if you've never received the Lord Jesus you turn from your way of living and your sin and you turn to Jesus and believe that he died for you, was buried for you and raised again to give you the forgiveness for your sin. Colossians two thirteen through 15 says, and when you were dead in your wrongdoings, Because the wages of sin is death. We're dead in our sin and the uncircumcision. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all the wrongdoings. Watch this. Having canceled their certificate of debt, consisting of the decrees against us, which was hostile to us and taken out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. In other words, what the Bible says is their certificate of debt was written against you and Jesus Christ can come and erase the certificate. Jesus is the one who erases the handwriting on the wall. And you just have to trust him so the Bible says in Acts 3:19 it says therefore repent in other words turn from your sin and return to your creator so that your sins may be what? wiped away. Your sins are there. The handwriting is on the wall. Judgment is coming. But, but the Bible says that through the blood of Jesus, he wipes it away and you can be cleansed so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That is my cry to you if you don't know the Lord. But if you were a believer in the house today, you've given evidence in your life that you've trusted the Messiah, here's what I tell you to do. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, that word confess means to say the same thing as. You call sin what it is. If you get specific about it and say, this is how I've sinned, God, just know that he's faithful and righteous when you haven't been, so that he will forgive you of your sins and do what? Cleanse you from all righteousness. But if you say that you have not sinned, you make him a liar, and you just prove that his word's not in you. But then, Second Corinthians twelve twenty one. see, this is my fear because it was Paul's fear. But I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who've sinned in the past and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and indecent behavior which they have practiced. And see, my fear is is that we'll meet again next Sunday and nobody's done anything about it. So I wonder as the band comes, would you do something about it today? Would you meet me here at this altar and can we just pray and repent and confess and receive this forgiveness that God offers, this cleansing that God offers? I wonder, would you stand to your feet with me? There'll be men and women up here to receive you. This altar will be open to pray by yourself you want to talk about Jesus we'll be here you want to deal with your sin we'll be here you can be here but let me pray we'll sing and you come God the word tells us that you are holy and we want to treat you as such this morning by asking you yet again to examine our hearts show us our sin not to condemn us so that we might be forgiven.